Good morning. How are y'all doing today? Awesome, awesome. Well, if you are joining us here at Hosanna in our room for the first time this morning, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here to worship with us today. This morning, we're going to be completing what is essentially the second half of the last message I gave a couple weeks ago called How to Identify Entry-Level Antichrists. Uh, that message was from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, and the message we're doing this morning is kind of like within those same verses scattered a little bit, and so we'll be covering a little bit of the same ground, but John in this letter has been building the concept of being secure in our salvation. He's been building the concept from the very beginning of being secure in the love of God. And he started out doing that by, by warning us about the battle between light and darkness, right? Walking in the light, walking in the darkness. He's then gone on to warn us about the battle between obedience and disobedience, where he talked about this is how we know we know him if we keep his commandments. And we discussed what that was when we went through that. He also has brought up the battle between love and hate, or more specifically, being loving or being hateful toward your brothers and sisters in the family of God. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he started with a warning about the third major battle that we deal with as Christians, and that's the battle between truth and error. And just as a way of reminder, as he opened this section, he started with a very brief reminder um, that he says his readers had already heard, uh, a reminder, a warning that they had already known about, and the reminder was that the Antichrist is coming. The Antichrist, capital T, capital A, all right? But right after that, he pointed out, even now, many Antichrists have already come. And so I've deemed them entry-level Antichrists, junior-level Antichrists, beginner Antichrists, whatever you want to call them. That's what I've decided to call them. And so just as a way of a reminder, that word Antichrist is a word that only John uses in his writings. And he uses it in a few different ways, but the word is used to refer to people, teachings, ideas, doctrines that are against or instead of what the word teaches about who Jesus Christ is. And when we say who Jesus Christ is, that really encompasses the idea of not just who he is, but what he came to do, how it's accomplished, the purpose of all of it. It just encompasses everything about Jesus. Now this word antichrist, John uses three different ways. Obviously, the, um, one of the ways he uses it is to refer to the Antichrist, which is this worldwide leader that the Bible tells us will, will head up the final world rebellion against God and his kingdom in the future to come. He also uses it to say the spirit of the Antichrist, which is the concept of the, the influence, the attitude, the, the, the effect that, that is operating in the world that is opposed to Jesus Christ and who he is and what he came to do. And, and that opposition takes place either directly or indirectly. And then John uses this word antichrist to refer to other people who embody this spirit of opposition to Jesus. They embody or operate in this spirit by being directly against Jesus, you know, just absolutely opposed to him and everything he's about, or by developing and offering counterfeit versions of who Jesus is, you know, saying, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus too, but, and they change things about who he is and what the Bible says, and that's a very dangerous thing to do. 
So again, in our last message, focusing on verses 18 through 23, we, we looked at how to identify these entry-level antichrists that are operating in our world today. And we talked about three tests. You know, the first one was the test of time, simply a recognition that the number of antichrists, people that operate in the spirit in the world today, is simply a picture of where we're at on the eschatological timeline, on the, on the timeline that, that earth has left. You know, John opened up by saying that we are in the last hour. And I believe we're in the last hour. You know, the last hour is referring to the time frame from, from really the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ all the way until now. And that last hour, <clears throat> excuse me, is really referring to this last era in the history of humanity during this phase of the world's existence. And so recognizing the time, recognizing the influence, recognizing the number, the frequency of these false Christs, these people who stand against Jesus outrightly or try and introduce counterfeit versions of him, it just really gives us a picture that we are in the end times. But the number of these false teachers has been increasing from the very beginning all the way until now. And if you spend you know, a half second on YouTube, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. There's a lot of false teaching available in the world today. The second test was really the test of togetherness, and really, as John was pointing out, that, that those who are entry-level antichrist that are operating in the spirit of antichrist will always end up leaving the fellowship. They will always leave the fellowship to pursue after some false truth, some alternate truth about who Jesus is, and they'll end up ultimately denying the biblical truth. And then the last one was really the test of their teaching, right? As John points out, who is the liar? The liar is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And that title that Jesus has, the Christ, carries so much meaning for who he is, what he came to do, and the effect that it has in our lives today. And so um, they deny that. They deny everything he is. They deny what he said about himself. They deny who he said he was and offer alternates to that. And so and they might do that openly. They might do that subtly by <clears throat> ultimately presenting salvation by other means outside of Jesus alone, which is what the Bible teaches, or by presenting salvation through a non-biblical Jesus. And so today, this morning, we're gonna look at the second half of his thought here. Not just how to identify them, but how to resist entry-level antichrist. How to insulate ourselves against the false teaching that's out there, because it's all over the place. And there's tons and tons of it in the world today, and we need to be careful, we need to be equipped, we need to be ready to identify truth from error so that we don't walk in error. And, and, and the devil's good at what he does, guys. He, is really, he doesn't just come right out and go, boogie, boogie, I'm the devil, believe my lies. No, he, he dresses it up in a way where we go, that sounds kind of good, but it's a subtle shift we could find ourselves falling into if we're not careful. And so this morning, as we look at how to insulate ourselves against their influence, we're gonna look at three powerful means, effective means in my opinion, and the first one is to remain in fellowship with the fellowship. The second one is to operate in the anointing, and the third one is to remain in the word. So that's what we'll be dealing with this morning, but first we wanna open up by taking some time as the fellowship to just set our hearts right to come before God, to put aside everything that's been bothering us, everything that, that, that's hurting us, everything we might be grieving over or struggling with, and just to focus on God in praise and worship. And so let's do that at this time, to lift up his name on high, to give him the glory, to give him our thanks and our gratitude, amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. 
God, we are so thankful for you and your truth, Lord. And, and God, we acknowledge that there's things in your word that sometimes are, are difficult to discern. And Lord, you're gonna teach us today um, about how to overcome that and how to, how to deal with that, Lord. But there are plenty of things in your word that are just cut and dry, obviously true. And Lord, there's an attack in the world today to pollute your truth, to corrupt your truth, to offer counterfeits to your truth that people may glorify themselves, that they may raise themselves up, that they may stand against you, God, and it's just, it's, it's everywhere. And Lord, we know today it's just escalating more and more as we head towards the end of all things here in this era of our world, God. And Lord, as your people, we wanna know truth. We wanna be people of the truth. We wanna live the truth. We wanna share the truth, God. And so Lord, help us to, to learn how to make sure that we're able to get the truth when we hear it and to know the difference when it's a lie. Lord, we worship you for who you are, what you've done. We give you all the glory. We love you, God. And so, Lord, now as we praise your name, we just pray that you would be blessed. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this morning we are looking at 1 John chapter 2. We're kind of jumping through this section here, but I want to read verses 18 through 27 to get the full context of, of what we're going to be talking about. And as I mentioned in the intro, some of this we dealt with in our last message, and the other half of this we're going to deal with today. So let's read 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... Even now, many antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar, if not the one, that, or the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as it has taught you, remain in him. And so verse 19 actually is where we get our first step in resisting entry-level antichrist, false teachers, those peddling false doctrines about who Jesus is. And it really is the opposite of what was the first thing to identify um, entry-level antichrist with. And the idea is to remain in fellowship with the fellowship. See, verse 19, he says, he's talking about these, these, these antichrists in the world. He says, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. 
Now, if you notice in that one sentence there, um, if you're the type of person to highlight or underline things, um, notice how many times the word us is mentioned in that sentence. It's actually five times in this one sentence. And so the idea here is it's an us and them type of thing. Not meant to you know, draw battle lines and be adversarial, but he's, but he's differentiating from those that are of the truth and those that are of error. And he says, if them leaving the fellowship, going out from us, and the idea there is forsaking the fellowship, meaning to depart from it completely, if that means that they never really belonged to the family of God to begin with, if that was an indicator that they weren't part of the family of God, then remaining in fellowship, in the fellowship, in a church that teaches the truth of God's word, all of it, Genesis to Revelation, doing that is a great way to resist the influence of entry-level antichrists. You know, in an environment where you are fed biblical truth, especially biblical truth about who Jesus is, in that environment, we all continue to grow and mature in what the Bible says, the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is something I think new believers especially need to hear if you're a new believer or if you're young in the faith. Um, you know, by, by, by hanging out, by investing in, by, by committing to relationship with other Christians in a, in a, in a Bible-believing church that is adherent to the truth of God's word, by being connected to all that, by being in the word together, by worshiping together, by praying together regularly, it, it helps you grow. It helps you grow in your walk. Now, without that type of fellowship, without that type of connection, and interestingly enough, the Bible calls it the koinonia fellowship. That's biblical fellowship. It's, it's, it's the type of deep connection, accountability, the, the encouragement, the, the doing life together is what koinonia fellowship is. Without that, our spiritual growth is stunted, is hindered. And when our spiritual growth is stunted and hindered, it can result in spiritual stagnation. And when spiritual stagnation sets in, sets in what happens is your spiritual senses get dulled. Your spiritual senses get hindered. They get dulled. And, and the result of that is your ability to discern truth from error starts to get weak. Now you'll also notice in this sentence the word they is also there five times. Us and they. And John is saying they went out from us. They left the fellowship. They did not and do not belong to the fellowship and they are liars. They are trying to deceive you. He says they do not have the Father because they deny the Son. He says they teach, what they teach about the Son is not true. And because what they teach about who Jesus is is, is not true, is not biblically true, the conclusions they draw about who he is, what he came to do, the means of salvation, all, all of that, ultimately end up being wrong. And because their foundation of who Jesus is is wrong, their encouragements on then how we are to live, how we are to conduct ourselves are all ultimately wrong because they ultimately end up being self-focused, not Christ-focused. They ultimately end up being about us and our effort and not a complete dependence on Christ and who he is. And it's all because they're wrong about Jesus. 
So what John is, is setting up here, what I see is our, our, our sensitivity to falsehood, our sensitivity to, to lies about Jesus, our, our discernment on whether or not what someone is saying and preaching as, as who Jesus is and a result of that and how to live and all that stuff, our, our ability to determine whether or not what they're saying is lie or a truth is on many levels greatly influenced by our koinonia connection or the lack thereof with the body of Christ, with the fellowship. The picture is this, um, for those of you that are, are barbecuers and have old style barbecues with, with coals in them, okay. Um, you know, now it's like click, click, flame, okay, but, but old style barbecues, right? I call that old style. Uh, if you isolate a coal from the barbecue, you got all the coals and they're burning, they're hot, and you take one and you isolate it, what happens to it? It cools off, it ultimately ends up fizzling out and it grows cold. It's the same idea with us as, as members of the family of God. It's the same, same with us. You know, a Stanford professor once said, I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There is no more destructive influence on the physical and mental health of people than isolation. And these last two years have been a, a, a great testimony to that, haven't they? You know, as the whole world shut down and what we saw is depression skyrocket and suicide skyrocket and mental health issues skyrocket because people were, were isolated and unable to, to be together and, 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 you know, just take that even more so into the spiritual level when the body of Christ is, is, is not together, we grow weak. Personally, I think that was part of the devil's agenda in all of this, and I'm so thankful that our church and many others were like, forget that nonsense, we're coming together because we need one another. It's important for us to be together. And the early church knew this. You know, you read in Acts chapter two, verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That word devoted, it means a constant, ongoing effort. It's not, you know, twice a year during Christmas or Easter, it's not once in a while when I feel like it. It was, it was a constant, regular, like I want to be connected with, with my family in Christ. Conversely, you have the concept of indifference. Indifference simply is a lack of interest or a lack of concern. I think in, indifference is seen in, in, in our lives, in the world today, when, when, when we get tempted to have the attitudes of it doesn't matter if I come to church or not. We, we, we think it doesn't matter if I connect or not. It doesn't matter if, if I read or not. It doesn't matter if I pray or not. It doesn't matter if I worship or not. And then as that sets into a life, I think what develops is, you know, it doesn't matter if, if I'm learning from somebody who's doctrinally off. It doesn't matter if I'm learning from somebody who's like, well, they, they have these good things to say, but these things really don't line up with Bible. But you know, it's okay. They're popular. They have a lot of subscribers. They have a lot of viewers. It doesn't matter. There's an indifference. And, and reality is, is it does matter. It matters greatly. And we have to guard ourselves against this tendency towards spiritual indifference. And one of the things that helps with that is fellowship with the fellowship being connected to the family of God. It helps with that. Fellowship helps keep you on target. Fellowship helps course correct us when we're off target. Fellowship is where we find accountability and where we find encouragement and where we find just a, just a mutual commitment to grow. 
And so thus, in that concept, who you fellowship matters greatly, right? You've all heard the phrase that, that each of us are the sum of the five people we hang around the most, right? You know, and there's been studies on that, and there's, there's a lot of truth to that, you know? The five people you spend the majority of your life with have great influence on who you are and how you think and how you behave. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have people in our lives that are like, okay, I definitely don't want to be like them, but I want to have an influence on them for the Lord. It's not to say don't have those people in your life, but the place where you're seeking koinonia fellowship, that, 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 that deepest, closest, and in, in, in most consistent connection, who are those people? because they will have an effect on you. And if everybody you fellowship with is doctrinally, theologically off target, guess what? You will likely be theologically, doctrinally off target. It's just how that works. And so remaining in fellowship with the fellowship really helps keep us from being infected with the disease of false teaching that's in this world today. Now, yes, I will readily and, and happily acknowledge that, that remaining in fellowship with the fellowship can be hard sometimes, right? I will admit that, that yes, there's, there are those in the fellowship that can sometimes hurt us, that, that might wound us, you know, and do something that, that makes connection difficult. That can happen. But leaving the fellowship, Leaving the fellowship for, for reasons, oh, I'm hurt, or you know, this, this person hurt me once, or I was at a church that hurt me once. Leaving the fellowship is just like leaving an open wound unwrapped. You leave an open wound unwrapped and you go about life, things are gonna get into that wound that are gonna cause more damage, are gonna cause infection, are gonna cause things to get worse. No, instead what we should do is bind those wounds with confession with forgiveness, with grace, with mercy. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. To bind up those wounds, to let healing take place. And so believers, Christians, you know, be together. And, and I've kind of been harping on this a lot this year. Right? It's been a big thing on my heart. You know, be together as much as you can. You know, not just with your biological family, but with your spiritual family as well, as much as you can. You know, to, to, to spend time with them, to do life together, to hold each other accountable, because in that accountability, you're holding each other accountable to truth. There's an accountability to pursue truth together, to discuss truth together, to learn and grow in truth together. And especially for the mature believers, if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, don't let the less mature go it alone. Oh, well, hey, hope you figured it out. Let me know when you get there. You know, it's, it's, it's we're called to, to, to be involved to, to whatever degrees we can, you know, to, to draw them into fellowship. You know, it's, it's new believers that are often the ones that, that struggle with connecting, right? A lot of you experienced this. You, you first got saved. Where did you sit in the church? The farthest row in the back and the farthest corner you could, right? You know, because you're like, I don't know these people yet. They're kind of weird. I'm not sure, you know? And, and, and so you're not connected. And, and then we're like, hey, community groups. And you're like, I ain't going into some stranger's house. That's just weird, you know? And, 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 and there's this difficulty to plug in. And, 
the mature believers were the ones that say, hey, how you doing? And here, I'm Nathan, and hey, I'd love to invite you and draw them into fellowship so that they can, can, can grow in, in, in you know, experiencing the compassion and the patience and all the understanding. And, and, and the mature believers were the ones that, that are to demonstrate that compassion and that patience and that understanding because you know, sometimes we, we might deal with the less mature believers and we go, ah, you're frustrating because you got weird theology and stuff. You know, don't forget... You probably had weird theology when you first got saved, you know? We, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus by being in fellowship. And so we wanna give, give uh, newer believers the less mature in their walk that time as well. And so um, we wanna be committed to, or as Acts 2.42 said, devoted to that fellowship and fostering that fellowship so that those you have the opportunity to um, influence, you can disciple them and be a part of that discipleship. Not like, oh no, they're not my responsibility. I'm just gonna go about doing my thing and living my life. No, <laughs> you're, you're, you're called to connect. We're called to connect. And so, anyways, that was the first step is, is to remain in fellowship with the fellowship. I believe that will insulate us against false teaching because you might be, be in, a, in, a, in a breakfast meeting or you get coffee once a week with a group of believers and you're like, hey, I saw this thing on YouTube and rattle off what it said and everybody looks at you and they go, that's wacko. That's the kind of accountability we need, right? You know, that's not what the Bible says. Let's pull out the, right? It's, it's that type of thing. So remain in fellowship with the fellowship. The second step is in verses 20 and 21 and verse 27. And so this second step to resist entry-level antichrist is to operate in the anointing. Now, for those of you that, that may be a little bit younger in the room, you might be like, uh-oh, that sounds very new apostolic reformation, Pastor Nathan. <laughs> you know, I knew it, this new guy was gonna lead us to, you know, no. Um, Let me explain what I mean by operate in the anointing. Okay, let's read verse 20 and 21. John says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. And then in verse 27, he says, as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it is taught you remain in him. So what is he saying here? This word anointing in the Greek is chrisma, okay? Chrisma, not to be confused with charisma, all right? It's a different word. Um, this word comes from the, the meaning to smear, to smear something on something. That's what this, this word comes from. In the Old Testament, um, we see pictures over and over again where, where they would have a new king or a new priest or a new prophet, and they would then pour this oil over their head, and it would just like drip down their face and through their beard. You know, it's like, like today, you know, when we come up and we're like, hey, can, can you pray for me and anoint me with oil? You know, we'll like boop, dab you on the forehead a little bit. You know, because um, we, we don't want to drip you in oil, right? You know, it was, it was just this saturation, and, and, and we just do that for logistical reasons. But in the Old Testament, this anointing, this smearing was, this stuff was just smeared all over them, saturating them. And so the idea of anointing was that this person was being set apart for God's special purpose, and the oil being, being just poured on them and smeared down over them was the picture that God's presence was with them, that God was with them and just he was saturating their entire being. So that's what this word anointing means. Now, incidentally, anointing was one of the two favorite words that the Gnostics would have in their vocabulary. If you remember, the Gnostics 
were these people that, that John was writing this letter co- to combat. They were false teachers coming into the church, and they had a lot of new and counterfeit ideas about who Jesus was and how salvation was accomp- accomplished. And so they, they had two favorite words, anointing and knowledge. Those were the two favorite words in these false teachers' vocabulary. So the idea of the Gnostics was not only do, do we have the special truth, Not only do we have the real secret to salvation in relationship with Jesus, not only do do we have the special knowledge of who Jesus really is, but, but on top of that, we are the only ones with the anointing to tell anybody about it. And so if you want the anointing to know, you know, the, 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 the secret ingredients to salvation, you need to become one of us. You need to join Gnostic thinking. You need to, to come with us. And so um, there are some today in our world today that throw around this word anointing pretty loosely. Um, some use it to indicate that they are somehow special set apart, you know, from the rest of the common folk in the church, you know, I have the anointing, listen to me, I have the anointing, but um, some people will, will claim this anointing just to justify really weird behavior. Um, you know, you're like, what are you doing? The Bible doesn't say roll around on the floor and, and bark. Oh, the anointing is upon me. No, weirdness is upon you, that's what's happening. Um, that's not biblical, you know? Or they'll say the anointing, they'll claim the anointing to, to justify them saying things that, that aren't what the Bible says, right? You know, that's not what the Bible says. No, you know, but, but no, the anointing is upon me, you know? Um, you know, I have the anointing, so I speak the truth, so you have to listen to me. And, and, and here's what John is saying here. Every saved Christian has the anointing. Every believer has the anointing. Now, when we say anointing in the the New Testament concepts, what we're generally referring to is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? Being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who the Bible tells us was with us and is now lives in us and overflows from us uh, through the baptism of the Spirit, right? It's a relationship of the Holy Spirit saturating our lives, completely dripping down our heads and dripping down our faces and and being every part of us. And the Bible teaches that, that, that when you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, contextually extending that, what John is getting at here is because every truly saved believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God himself is is living within you. You're anointed with the Holy Spirit. Because of that, you, believer, have godly discernment and recognition within you to be able to detect truth from error about who Jesus is. That's the anointing that he's referring to here. So one, the anointing is not just for a few select group of people, all right? If you're saved, you have the anointing, all right? Every believer has it, not just the Gnostics, not just some you know, elite group of, of spiritual snobs, not just people who went to a special apostolic school of ministry or anything like that. Every believer has the anointing because every believer has the Holy Spirit. But if you look at verse 20, we see that this anointing is, is connected with knowing all truth, right? He says, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all truth. And then in verse 27, he says, his anointing teaches you about all things. And so you put those concepts together, he's he's referring to knowing the truth about all things. The Holy Spirit helps us to know the truth about all things. 
But what does he mean by all things? Does he mean because you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, you now know the secrets of nuclear fission? Right? You've suddenly, you know, you, you, the, 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 the mysteries of quantum mechanics are just opened up in your brain because you're saved. Is, is that what he means by all things? Right? If that's truly what he meant, there would never be a communication issue between men and women again because we would completely understand each other. And you go, well, we know that's not true in all cases, right? So, so what does he mean by all things? Well, the context of the book, he's been talking about knowing the truth about who Jesus is, knowing that you're saved because of the truth about who Jesus is. Right? That's been the context of the book, knowing that, that God, Jesus is God, knowing that, that he is light, knowing that he is love. Right? Here's been the context of the whole thing. And so he means here that the Holy Spirit within you gives the capacity to know the truth of all things about these issues, about who Jesus is and what all that means, to be able to discern truth from error regarding Jesus, the Christ. You may have experienced this at some point in your life. I know I have where, where you know, maybe when you were younger in your faith or maybe you still experience it all the time. I don't know, but, but you're, you're, you're listening to a preaching. You're watching someone on YouTube. You start to hear what they're saying about Jesus and, and their conclusions, you know, a podcast or whatever, and you go, that doesn't sound right. Have you ever had that happen? You're like, I can't exactly identify specifically what's off, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel right what's being said here. It doesn't feel right what's being taught. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, it, it feels off how they're applying what, what the word says about this or that, you know, specifically in regards to who Jesus is. And what John, I believe, is getting at here is as, as, as we remain in Christ, as we abide in Christ, as we stay closely connected to him. That's what this abiding and remaining is talking about. And, and it's being connected to Christ and his word and his truth and his body, which is the fellowship of the, the people. The Holy Spirit will give you that check in your heart that says, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't jive with, with what I've heard. That doesn't line up. It's like a spiritual notification on your phone, right? Bing or whatever sound you use, because there's a thousand of them now, right? <laughs> That's off. I'm not sure about that, right? Um, but John also goes on to say something very interesting I want to address real quick in verse 27. He says, because you have this anointing, you don't need anyone to teach you. So we're done. Go home. No, that's, that's not what he's talking about, all right? Um, this is, incidentally, I believe, another piece of scripture that has been abused, um, by people, especially when they take it out of context. And I believe specifically, it's mostly abused by those who want to cop out of fellowship. Those who want to justify, I don't have to go to church. I don't need to plug in with the body. You know, those who want to say, I don't need church. I don't need any pastor or elder or deacon. I don't need any human teacher because right here the Bible says, I don't need anyone to teach me if I have the Holy Spirit. Well, this is why context is important in studying the word of God, all right? Not just the context of the immediate section, what are the verses before and after it, not just the context of the chapter, not just the context of the book, but the context of the entire Bible, the word of God. It's why it's important. If you interpret this to mean you don't need 
any pastor, any elder, any deacon, any teacher of any kind spiritually, well, then you need to delete Ephesians 4 from your Bible app or tear it out of your Bible. Because in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, we're familiar with this, it says he himself, God, gave some, and that means given as gifts to the body, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. So if 1 John 2 here, he's saying, I have the Holy Spirit, I don't need any teacher, well, Ephesians 4 doesn't make any sense. That's why context is important. We gotta see what the whole Bible says. So what is John talking about then when he says, because you have the anointing, you don't need anyone to teach you? Well, again, the Gnostics, they were coming into the fellowships with their false teachings about who Jesus was, what he did, the means of salvation, how that then should affect how we live and operate with one another. They were, they were coming in with all of that. They were coming in and saying, look, we've got the special knowledge. We have the secret. We have the new revelation from God. And, you know, it, and, and what we're telling you might not be in the letters that you've been getting from the apostles, you know, as they're writing. It might not be in line with the Old Testament. Um, but, you know, uh, we're the ones with the special knowledge. We're the ones with the anointing. And so you have to listen to us about what we say. And God spoke it to me, so it's for you, right? This is, this is what was happening in the church. And John is saying, no. Family of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. You have God living within you. You have the truth. You have God's word. You know it. I know you know it. And so I'm writing to you to remind you of that that you don't need anything outside of the truth you've been given. You don't need any other supposed truths about Jesus. You don't need any new revelation. There is no new secret other than the version of Jesus that lines up with what Jesus said about himself and what God's word says about who he is. You know, in John 16, 13, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he has come. He is here, and if you're a believer in this room this morning, he dwells within you. You have the anointing. You have the discernment available to you to know truth from error, but that, that movement of that gets weak if you isolate yourself from the fellowship and isolate yourself from the church. So stay plugged in. Stay plugged into the koinonia. Operate within that anointing. But there is a danger. There is a danger that comes from leaning specifically and exclusively on our anointing to discern truth from error. There's a danger in that because we as humans, we're flawed. We as humans are easily manipulated by our emotions. You know, those that, that are trained to do so, that are charlatans and con artists, it's not hard for them to manipulate people and to say things that aren't true and get you to believe you're hearing from God. This is, this is from God. So this leads to the third step, I believe, that John teaches here to, to protect ourselves, to insulate ourselves against the influence of entry-level antichrists and their false teaching. Stay in fellowship. Let the Holy God direct you in discerning truth from error. And the third step, 
Remain in the word. Remain in the word. You know, in Acts 17, 11, Paul was speaking to a group called the Bereans, and it says this. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The picture there we have is these group of people that they, they would hear Paul the apostle, right? Paul would be preaching, Paul would be teaching, and they'd be like, man, we're, we're so excited about, you know, it, it, if this is true, you know, this is, this is everything we, we, we wanted to hear, this is great. And then they'd go, well, but let's go see if that lines up with God's word. Let's go see if that lines up with what we've been told. And that's always a good habit to have. It's always a good habit to have, especially in, in today's media-saturated world. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you guys, right? There, 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 there are churches and Bible studies I watch online, and man, it is slick. And, and the production, yeah, I'm gonna, I envy the production sometimes. I'm like, man, their camera shots are so great and all this stuff. And you're like, man, it looks so good. It's so entertaining to watch. But when you listen to the teaching, you start to go, wait a second, something's off. Something's not right about the truth that they're proclaiming. You know, and just because you have a $100,000 camera doesn't suddenly make the words that come out of your mouth true. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way, and so we gotta be careful, because we're saturated in the world today. So, 1 John 2, 24. He says, what you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So when he says what you have heard from the beginning, what, what John is referring to there is the teachings of Jesus the teachings of the apostles, right? As the apostles took what Jesus taught them and taught and, and shared, this is what he's referring to. You know, we have to keep in mind, they didn't really have a copy of the New Testament in these days, right? The, the, there wasn't, you know, this is the New Testament, this is the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament writings, but then at this point in time, they had letters from the different apostles that were expounding on the truths that Jesus taught them. And so there was no bookstores, there was no Amazon to order your Bible from. It, it was just the teachings that they had heard. So he's like, look, what you have heard from the beginning, the teachings that have been taught, the letters that have been written, let the truths that you have been given remain in you. Don't replace them with anything. Don't add to them in that, in that regard. Let them remain in you and then you in it. Which I think is a very interesting admonition that we see uh, through scripture over and over because Jesus is the word. And Jesus said, look, remain in me and I in you. So it all ties together that the truth we have, you know, don't add to it, don't change it. So when we remain in the word, we, we insulate ourselves from getting carried away with what the Bible says is every wind of doctrine. You know, people who, who are experts at identifying counterfeit bills, you know, it's, it's been said that they become experts because they study the real bill. They study it. They, 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 they are so intimately familiar with the real thing that as soon as something counterfeit pops up, they're like, oh yeah, that's fake. The, the feel of the paper, the coldness of it, whatever. Me, not me. I'm just, hey, looks real, right? When I was a kid, I worked at Target, and I got scammed so many times. People come up to buy things, and they do their little money change scams, and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> I hope it's real. Then at the end of the day, Nathan, your drawer is short. Okay, you know, I'm terrible at identifying that. 
but the word of God, I want to be good at it. And so you got to remain in the word. You got you to know the truth of it to resist the spirit of antichrist. You remember back in verse 14 of 1 John 2, he said, I've written to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And he was referring to those that are mature in the faith. And then he says, I've written to you young men. And that's kind of just referencing spiritual adolescence. You know, those of us that are in kind of the teenage years of our spiritual walk. He goes, I've written to you because you are strong. God's word remains in you. And you have conquered the evil one. That phrase remains in you is not saying the word of God approaches you maybe once or twice per week for maybe an hour or so. And, 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 and that's all your exposure to it. That's not what remains in you means, right? This is why you know, we're, we're always encouraging you know, daily reading and, and a habit of getting into the word every day, you know, to some degree. Sometimes it might be longer, sometimes it might be shorter, but, but, but feed on the word of God every day, not just once a week, not just at a Bible study, and especially not just always hearing someone else tell you what it says. Teaching is good, but like the Bereans, crack it open, open your app, and say, what is it saying to me? And God, what do, you, what do you want to speak into my life? The word of God is to be the center of our lives. It's to remain in us. It's to never leave us. It's to always be before us. And yeah, it takes work to develop the habits of that, right? 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. And that takes work, that takes effort, that takes study, that takes setting aside, uh, I wanna do this, but you know what, I'm gonna get in the word right now. It, it, it takes an intentionality. But the payoff is huge. You know, G. Campbell Morgan, is one of the greatest preachers ever, and he was from England. He preached a sermon one day, and, and a young man came up to him after and was like, wow, pastor, that message was so inspirational. It so encouraged me and built me up and just I felt like so connected with the Lord with that. And he said, well, you know what? 95% of inspiration is perspiration. We all want to be inspired by the word of God, right? We all want to open it up, you know, and like, oh, the light shines out of it. And we're like, oh, and we lift it up. And we're like, my life has changed. And, and that never happens, I'll be honest, okay. Um, physically, you know, but, but, but sometimes we open it up and we, and we feed on it and it's like, okay, right? But, but we don't walk away with this like life-changing revelatory thing, but it's still affecting your life. It's still working in your heart. It's still changing who you are. So we gotta remain in it. Dig into the word of God regularly. Let it remain in you. And in doing so, what John is saying here is that in doing so, it'll keep you um, in that place where you remain in the Son and the Father, Jesus told us to follow him, right? Let's do it. Let's follow him. Let's learn of him. Let's study who he is and what he wants. So in closing here, there was, a, there was once a man who looked out his window at his garden. He had a beautiful garden. And he saw three visitors in his garden. The first visitor was a butterfly. It was a beautiful butterfly, and it just kind of fluttered around the garden and just briefly touched down from flower to flower. And so beautiful, right? You know, and, and he thought, well, that's, that's neat. It's just, it's just touching down. But the butterfly never really derived any benefit from it, any flower it touched down upon. And then it fluttered away. The second visitor was a botanist. Came into the garden, 
with a notepad and a pen and a magnifying glass. And he watched as this botanist just closely observed everything in the garden, went up to every flower, pulled out the glass, took notes, took notes, took notes. But other than gaining intellectual knowledge from the observation, nothing changed in the botanist's life. Then the third visitor was a little bumblebee. And this little bumblebee flew into this garden and would set down on one of the flowers, circle around, find one, and then boom, dig in. Get all the way down to the nectar. And he noticed that that little bumblebee, every time it dug in, committed into the process, dug down deep, came away full, came away filled. So my question this morning is, is which one are you? Which one are you today? Are you the butterfly? You know, maybe you go from sermon to sermon, go from church to church. Please don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with going to multiple churches, right? Let me finish the thought here. But, but you go from place to place, group to group. But all you're looking for is, is, is the warm fuzzies. What makes me feel good? You know, but you never really connect you never really dig down deep anywhere, and, and consequently, you never really grow and mature. You just flutter. Or are you the botanist, where you approach Jesus, you approach Christianity very academically? Maybe you're a great observer, and you take lots of notes, and, and you, you know, tear everything that's said apart to, to analyze the truth of it, you know? And, and there's, there's good in that, but, but in that observation, and in that analyzing, and in that taking notes, and in that intellectual pursuit, it never penetrates your heart. It never changes who you are, and how you behave, and how you interface with this world, and, and, and all of that, and you just walk away with knowledge each time, but your life hasn't changed at all. Or are you the little bumblebee? When you come in and you plug in, you dig down, you sink deep into the word of God and you get every last drop you can from it. You plug into the fellowship so that there's an accountability to truth and discussion and all of that and you're nourished and you're fed and you're changed and you're filled. God's word is true. I believe that with all my heart. God's word is true. God's word does not change. God's word is reliable. There are new, no, uh, no new revelations. God revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, gave us his truth through his prophets and his apostles, and that's what we build our lives upon today. But when entry-level antichrists come into the world and come into our lives through our screens and our phones and our web browsers and, and all of that, we insulate ourselves against their influence by doing three things that John points out here. One, don't stray from the family. Don't isolate yourself from the fellowship. Don't isolate yourself and say, I don't need church, I don't need community, I don't need anything like that, because when you do, you're gonna, you're gonna fizzle, you're gonna grow cold. Your spiritual discernment will be hindered and weakened you'll find that your growth is stunted. Instead, get strength by being plugged in and connected to the fellowship. Second, lean on the Holy Spirit. You have the anointing. You have within you God himself to help you discern truth from error. 
Trust that anointing. Listen to that check when you're hearing something online or somewhere and you're going, I'm not so sure about that. Listen to that and investigate as the Brians did and say, let me go see if that lines up with the word of God. And then study the word. Let it remain in you. Let it be before you consistently so that it would be in you and you would be in it. That you would be able to identify truth from error because you know the truth. And so when that Holy Spirit gives you that check, you go back to the word and you're like, yeah, that's not what the word says. So therefore, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna listen to that. Don't replace the truth of God's word with anything else. Don't add to it. Just remain in it. And in doing all of that, we declare in our lives and through our lives to a lost and dying world, you know, what family we belong to. And, 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 and we protect ourselves from the influence of the entry-level antichrist and their false teaching. So one of the things that, that we do as the family of God, as the fellowship that demonstrates our connection that demonstrates the koinonia that we have, that, that speaks of the truth, that, that yeah, we're, we're filled with the Holy Spirit of promise, right? We're, we're, we've been sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise as a result of our salvation and, and, and something that proclaims our, our remaining and abiding commitment to the word of God and obedience to him is communion. We observe communion together as the church as he commanded us to do. You know, now, we usually do this as a body here on the first Sunday of every month, all right? And I've not yet um, gotten really good at not scheduling guest speakers on first Sunday of the month, <laughs> so I'm working on that. So last week we had a guest speaker, and uh, so we're gonna be doing communion today. But the, the intention, because some of you have asked me, you know, uh, when are we doing communion? We used to do it the first Sunday every other month and the first Wednesday every other month, but now that we're meeting on Sundays um, uh, congregationally together, we'll be doing it on the first Sunday on every other month unless something comes up, okay? So, but um, you should have all gotten communion cups today as you came in the room. If you did not, please raise your hand, and uh, um, Chris in the back will make sure you get a cup. So raise your hand high if you didn't get one. If you're online, um, hopefully you got your emblems already, but you can go ahead and get them now if you haven't. And you know, this, this thing we do, we call it one of the sacraments of the church because it's, it's holy, it's important. You know, it's not just this thing we throw into the mix. Jesus said, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me, right? Um, and so we observe this together to do exactly that, to remember him, who Jesus is. You know, when Jesus took the bread, um, he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And uh, so real quick, on your cup here, you should have like a little thin plastic tab on the top. Just very delicately pull that back and it'll reduce or reveal the bread here. You know, when Jesus took this bread at the Last Supper, he was presenting it to his people, his followers, his children. And, and it says there that he said, this is my body which is for you after he broke it. He, he wanted us to remember something very important. His body was broken for us. That, that he endured the full wrath of God against sin in our place. 
God's justice had to be satisfied. God is holy, God is just. And because we're inherently sinful people, it's, it's in our DNA, there wasn't any good works we could do, there wasn't any, you know, hey, can I give you a few weekends to pay off the debt? That's not how it worked, right? It was, it was, it was an eternal debt that we owed that we could not pay off no matter what, no matter what we did, no matter what we tried. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came and he told his disciples, look, I'm, this is my body, I'm, I'm being broken for you. We can't ever forget that he was the only one that could do that. He was the, the one that had to do that. Why? Because Jesus is God, the Son. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Nobody else is. It's not Jesus plus this. It's not Jesus, eh, he's really Michael the Archangel. No, it's not Jesus, well, he's Lucifer's brother. No, it's Jesus, God the Son, was the only one who could come to this earth and die for your sin. He was the only one that was sinless, the only one with a perfect sinless body that can take the full wrath of God. And without his sacrifice, you and I would have no hope of salvation, no hope of restoration. Because before God Almighty, every human being, regardless of class, regardless of status, regardless of station, we're all equally guilty in our sins. Equally guilty. And in that perspective, it's interesting because all of humanity is united in the fellowship of the guilty. Every single human. But because he loved you so much, because he loved me so much, the Bible tells us that, that, that because he is love, God came to this earth, clothed himself in flesh, lived a perfect life, and then took the judgment on himself. Stood in our place. And the wrath of God was horrible. The wrath of God was mighty. The wrath of God was just. And it all fell on him. But as God died in our place, it allowed his justice to be fulfilled so that God could then look at us and as we put our faith in what he did and accept his sacrifice on our behalf, he could say, look, the penalty has been paid. And so now our koinonia can be restored. Our fellowship can be restored. There would be no more a barrier of sin between us and our creator. This is what Jesus did. And because we have trusted in him and who he is and what he did, we are now united as the family of Christ completely in the fellowship of the forgiven. This is what Jesus wanted us to remember. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you so much that you died in our place. God, we thank you that you are who you are because if you weren't who you are, your sacrifice wouldn't mean anything. Lord, if you were just a man, your sacrifice wouldn't mean anything. If you were anything but who you say you are, it would have just been another dude who, who died on the cross. And Lord, we know there were two others with you in that moment that died with you, but only one of them, God, as they called out to you, 
put faith in you, Sid said, I believe you are who you are, who you say you are, God. They were saved. You, you told that person you will be with me in paradise. And Lord, we have that hope today that we are able to be united to you, to be a part of the fellowship of the forgiven God, united together as the body of Christ because your body was broken for us. And Lord, your body was broken that we would be healed, that relationships would be healed, that sicknesses would be healed, that, 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 that our spirit that was separated from you, that, that connection would be healed. And we remember that, God. And we cling to that, Lord, and we pray that we would be people who proclaim that truth and live that truth and that through your Holy Spirit dwell within us to discern those who would want to pollute that truth because this truth is eternally effective and has an eternal effect on our lives. We thank you, we love you so much that your body was broken for us. Let's partake together. So for those in the room, you have a, there's a thicker tab on the outside of your cup. Just very carefully peel that back and it'll reveal the, the juice here in the cup. You know, at that same Last Supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood. And he called it the new covenant. The new covenant. You know, under the old covenant, it was a, never-ending process of having to come back and say, here, God, here's my sacrifice. Please forgive me of my sin. But I had to come back and do it again. And I had to come back and do it again. And I had to keep doing these, these efforts to, to be right with God. But Jesus is saying here, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. The new covenant was, was teaching us, and he wanted us to remember that it was in him, through him, because of him. Our sins aren't just covered. They are washed clean permanently and forever. That, that, that we are washed clean, born again with, with, with a clean record. That God doesn't just look at us as guilty but not punished. You're still guilty, but, but, but I died on the cross for that. No, he looks at us as not guilty, never having committed a crime, never having sinned a single time against him, set free, connected with God, born again, sealed with the Holy Spirit. He looks at us that way through the blood that was shed on the cross. Yeah, Jesus took the punishment and his body was broken for us, but then the blood he shed was the ultimate atonement that washed everything away, making us righteous before the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't deserve that. But God didn't do that because we deserve it or don't deserve it. He did it because he chooses to love us. He chose to love us. He said, I love you so much that I will pay this price but he also wanted us to remember that it was only through him. It's through his blood we are washed clean. Not through anything else, but through Jesus, God the Son, God in the flesh. Through Jesus, the Jesus that the Bible declares him to be and who he said he was, not any other version. That, that we're washed clean by the blood of who he is, not that plus other things. 
It's him and him alone and because of his sacrifice, through our faith in his atonement, we, we now can live each day with hope for our future, for our eternal future and hope that every day moving forward he lives within me and so I can be safe in his embrace and safe in his, his spirit dwelling within me to, to be able to discern truth from error and be able to heal and forgive and grant grace and all those things that we could not do on our own because he washed us clean of the sin that enslaved us. And we can forget our past because his word says we can. And we trust in his word. We press on towards the prize. We press on towards the goal. We don't remain in a place where our guilt and our condemnation beats us up because there is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We remember this in communion. And we remember that because he shed his blood for us. He did that on our behalf. And because we have accepted, put our faith in, that sacrifice that he made for us, we are now children of God. Saved, loved, transformed for his glory. Given a brand new heart. Given a living spirit that that desires to, to live for him and obey him. And then given and enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do exactly that. Hallelujah, we thank you, God. Let's pray. Father, we trust in your shed blood. We trust in the work of your shed blood to pay the price. Lord, you didn't just take the punishment, you paid the price. You paid our debt, all of it. And God, as, as believers and people who put our faith in you, we know that God, it was only you that can do that, God the Son, God in the flesh. We trust in that. We believe in that. And God, we ask that you would help us to just be unwavering in the truth of that. Lord, we are able to live a life now free of condemnation and guilt because of what you did, Lord, and we are so grateful for that. We are so thankful for that. And we ask, Lord, that the remembrance of this that we do in communion, God, would drive us and motivate us each day to stand in truth, to walk in truth, to know the truth, to live the truth, and to share the truth because your truth has changed our eternity. And we know you want that for those that don't yet know you, God. And so we thank you, Lord, for saving us. We love you. Let's partake together. So I pray God would bless you guys. I pray as you are living life and watching videos and hearing podcasts and all this stuff, that you would listen to the still small voice of the Lord as he speaks within you, especially when it's like, oh, I don't know about that. Because the truth of who God is and what he did is everything. 
Just because you slap the name of Jesus on something, it doesn't mean it's gonna grant salvation. And so knowing him and learning of him and growing in him, it's, it's, it's everything in our lives. And so I pray that God would just continue to speak into your lives, that you would continue to have a growing hunger for his word, to study his word, to know his word, that you would be able to identify the counterfeits when they present themselves. That in your connection and koinonia with the body of Christ that you are a part of, that that would motivate you, that would cause you to grow, that there would be all the accountability and, 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 and encouragement that is intended to be there so that every single one of us will continue to grow to the full stature of the people God's created us to be. That's what I want in my life. I wanna be everything that, that, that God has called me to be and who he's called me to be, and I pray that for you guys too, because you will be blessed as you grow in him. Let's worship.